We'll start with a question for you to think about. What is more important, knowing the truth or displaying love? Now, some of us will instinctively, as soon as we hear that question, we'll instinctively answer it one way. And some of us will instinctively answer it the other way. But as Christians, when we think about the question a bit, what's more important, knowing the truth or displaying love, when we think about that, we'd probably say, well, you can't separate the two. You can't choose between knowing the truth and displaying love. We need both, don't we? The challenge comes for us when we try to do that, to be equally concerned with knowing the truth and displaying love. And as we come to 1 Corinthians this morning, we're going to find the Corinthians needed help with this. It's the next in a long list of things they need help with. And that's good for us because we need help with this too. And what we're going to find is the Corinthians were big on knowing the truth. They had that covered, or at least they thought they had. But they had lost sight of the need to show love. And so in chapter 8 of this letter, Paul deals with this question. Knowledge. What's love got to do with it? And in fact, this issue of acting in love is going to occupy Paul from this point right through to the end of chapter 14. He's going to talk about love in relation to personal rights, love in relation to the Lord's Supper, love in relation to spiritual gifts, and love in relation to worship services. But here in chapter 8, he starts it all off with what seems like a very obscure topic, food that has been offered to idols. If you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 1149. In the larger print Bibles, page 1778. 1 Corinthians 8, and I'll read the whole chapter. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even those, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, 
that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is God's Word. I can't be sure what you tend to spend your time thinking about in the week, but I think it's a pretty safe guess you don't spend any time wondering whether it's okay to eat meat that has been offered to idols. Now, this is a very significant issue for millions of Christians today, those who live in Hindu or Buddhist cultures. This issue is a hot topic for them, just as it was in first century Corinth. But for us, it takes a little bit of work to get at the relevance of this. So let's take a moment and put ourselves into the Corinthian situation. If you were going to eat meat in Corinth, it was highly likely that meat would come from a pagan temple. When animals were offered there in sacrifice, whether it was to Artemis or to Apollo or whoever, part of that sacrificial meat was burned, part of it went to the temple staff, and the remainder would be sold in the marketplace or at uh, restaurants in the temple, as we'll see. Now, maybe there were some rare exceptions to that, but historians tell us the vast majority of meat that was available started out as a sacrifice to pagan gods. And there were two ways to get that meat in Corinth. You could buy it in the market and then prepare it at home, or you could eat it at one of the pagan temples. You could go to one of the dining halls there and have an Apollo burger or an Artemis burrito, whatever the equivalent was. Your friends might hold their birthday parties there or their anniversary celebrations, just like we might take our friends to Bella Italia or Nando's. But the difference is, if you and I celebrate at a restaurant, there is no religious aspect to us eating there. In Corinth, there was. Even if it was just a birthday party, there were still sacrifices going on there to pagan gods, and the food you were eating had been slaughtered as part of those sacrifices. So, what should a Christian do? Was it okay to go to the party or not? That's the background to our passage. In chapter 10, Paul will deal with the question of eating meat that was bought at the market and then prepared and served at home. But here in chapter 8, he's focusing on the question of going to eat in the dining hall of a pagan temple. And it seems there's a bit of a consensus about this in the Corinthian church. It's a big issue. They've thought about it a bit, and they believe they've come up with a satisfactory answer to this dilemma. And they've written to Paul 
explaining their thinking. We notice back in chapter 7, Paul is responding to a letter from Corinth. He started by dealing with what they said to him about marriage. He responded to that. And here he begins to respond to what they've said about food sacrifice to idols. But it turns out as we look at this, Paul is more interested in their approach to the issue than he is in the conclusion they've come to. It's their attitude that concerns him. He considers that their conclusion about the meat is actually a secondary thing. He's concerned about their attitude and he wants to challenge it. There in verse 1, he quotes what they've said to him in the letter. That's why it's in quote marks. We all possess knowledge. Meaning, as Christians, we all possess knowledge. Well, who could argue with that? Paul certainly isn't going to argue with it. His letters are full of things that Christians need to know and be sure about. Back in chapter 2, he said Christians have access to a whole dimension of knowledge that non-Christians don't. The Holy Spirit, he said, teaches spiritual things to God's people. Specifically, the Spirit teaches us who God is and that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the one who brings about God's plan of salvation, the way we can get to know God through Jesus. So yes, as Christians, we all possess knowledge. We don't know fully. Our knowledge is not exhaustive. But we do know true things about God because He has revealed them to us. And Paul is very clear in his letters, we ought to pursue deeper knowledge of the things God has revealed to us. The Corinthians are right about the importance of knowledge. And they have used that knowledge to make their own decision on this issue of food sacrificed to idols. And we'll see shortly what their decision is. They have decided there's only one God, so what goes on at idol temples is irrelevant. We're free to go and have our Artemis burrito. And here, Paul does not quibble with their logic. He will in chapter 10. He'll tell them they need to think a bit harder about this. But here, he focuses on something else. Even if their logic is good, they've made a mistake. They have failed to see that knowledge without love is arrogance. Look how he responds to them in verse 1. We all possess knowledge. That, that's what they've said to him. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. We've already noticed it's impossible to read Paul's letters and decide somehow that Paul is against knowledge. And here he is not condemning knowledge of the truth. He's saying knowledge of the truth is not all you need. Knowledge without love just inflates us with self-importance. Knowledge that doesn't lead us to consider others is not the kind of knowledge that's pleasing to God. 
We've probably all met very clever people who are so puffed up, they're unbearable to be around. They might be very highly informed, but they're also highly inconsiderate of others. And unfortunately, that can happen in the church too. After all, one of our lifelong responsibilities as Christians is to grow in our knowledge of God and His Word. It's to deepen our understanding of this divinely inspired book and our understanding of the God who speaks through it. We know it's not possible to thrive, it's not possible even to survive as a Christian without a commitment to study the Bible. But as we study and as we advance in our grasp of the truth, we must at the same time be seeking to grow in love. Love for God and love for those around us. If we don't, there's only one outcome. We will become proud of our knowledge. Instead of growing up, we will just puff up. And actually, we'll show we've not really begun to know God at all. When it comes to Christianity, knowledge without love is not true knowledge. When it comes to chemistry, when it comes to computing, of course, we can know things without bothering about love. But when we truly grow in God's truth, we will grow in love at the same time. And so in verse 2, Paul is challenging the Corinthians. You think you know stuff about God, but you don't yet truly know because your knowledge is loveless. And ultimately, God is less interested in how much information you know about Him than He is in how much you love Him. That's the sense of verse 3. Whoever loves God is known by God. It's vital to know the contents of the Bible. But God is not just looking for people who only know the contents of the Bible. He wants people whose knowledge of the Bible leads them to love Him more and to love others more. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's pause so we can take this point on board because it is relevant for us. We as a fellowship put a big emphasis on studying God's Word. And that's intentional. It's not just something we fell into. It is a core conviction for us. We treasure the Bible as a living, supernatural book. We treasure it as a perfectly wise, truly life-changing message from our God. And so we spend the bulk of our worship services not singing, although we see great value in music and singing, but we spend the bulk of our time not expressing our words to God, but listening as carefully as we can to hear His word to us. We also discuss that word in home groups, and we try to encourage personal Bible study at home. And so 
we as a church especially need to hear what Paul is saying. True knowledge of God does not consist in just hoovering up information about God. It's not just about analyzing Scripture and getting our theological ducks all in a nice little row. It's possible to have all of that, to have all the Bible answers, but if our growth in knowledge is not increasing our love, then it's not true growth at all. We're just getting inflated with pride. Paul wants us to see that true growth in knowledge will produce a big heart, not a big head. What does all this have to do with food sacrifice to idols? Paul gets to that in verse 4. He's about to outline the Corinthian thinking on this issue, and up to a point he thinks it's good reasoning. Their thinking is good up to a point, but Paul wants them to see what's been left out of their thinking. Verse 4, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Verse 4 has two sets of quotation marks because Paul is almost certainly quoting what the Corinthians have said to him. And what they've said is correct. These pagan idols have no life. They're just blocks of stone or wood. The Old Testament often pokes fun at idols. There's a part in 1 Samuel where the Philistine god Dagon falls over and has to be set upright again. It happens a few times. And the writer of Samuel wants us to see the funny side as he tells us about it. Why would you worship a God who needs you to pick him up every morning and set him back in his place? Because he keeps falling over in the night. So, of course, yes, an idol is nothing at all in the world. And yes, of course, there is no God but one. That's a paraphrase of one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Paul can agree in verse 5, whatever other powers there might be in the universe, even supernatural powers, yet, verse 6, for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This verse is highly significant for what it says about Jesus. That famous statement in Deuteronomy 6 uses the words Lord and God to refer to the same one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here in verse 6, notice how Paul repeats that truth about the one God. And then he uses the terms Lord and God to speak of two persons, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Father is God and Jesus Christ is God too. We could spend ages looking at how those statements and others like them give rise to the doctrine of the Trinity along with statements about the Holy Spirit. Those are big statements. 
And maybe we could imagine the Corinthians gearing up for that kind of big, heavy discussion from Paul. But look at the phrase he slides into the middle of verse 6. God is the one for whom we live. Yes, it is mind-blowing to think about him and who he is. But we're not called to put God under our theological microscope, to analyze him for the sake of our curiosity. No, our calling is to know him so that we can live for him. We don't study scripture so we can learn the lingo and know how to talk impressively. No. True knowledge of God recognizes that we live for God. That simple reality will deliver us from the kind of knowledge that just puffs up. It will produce a commitment to put our knowledge to work. Not to elevate ourselves, but to honor God and bless his people. And for the Corinthians, that's going to mean considering how their decisions and their behavior impact their fellow Christians. In verses 7 and 8, Paul still doesn't argue with the decision the Corinthians have made. They've decided that because idols are nothing, they can go and eat idol food in idol temples. And Paul doesn't say here that their theology is wrong. But he does say your hearts are wrong. You're failing to consider your brothers and sisters who see things differently. In the middle of verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having, having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. In other words, think of those who are still struggling to leave their idolatrous past behind. They have lived in bondage to idolatry, enslaved to those false gods. And their new faith in Christ isn't very strong yet. They're only beginning to grasp his absolute supremacy and the impotence of idols. So then, verse 9 be careful that the exercise of your rights or your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Paul is talking about these younger believers being drawn back into idol worship. As they see their more senior brothers and sisters from church joining in with an idol feast at an idol temple. The senior Christians may think they're just eating a burger. But the younger Christian assumes they're participating in idol worship. So it turns out the knowledge of these senior believers is deficient. They may have their theology right. There's only one God, so idols are nothing. But there's more to consider as they decide what the right thing to do is. 
They need to consider not just what can I get away with, but how can I best honor God? And that means considering their fellow believers, how best to help their faith rather than hindering it. In verse 9, Paul warns the senior believers not to become a stumbling block. That phrase is used in the New Testament to speak about something deadly serious. It's about causing someone to miss out on salvation. In verse 11, Paul talks about that person being destroyed. He says we can be the cause of that if we fail to consider the way our lives and decisions impact others. So how do we become men and women who don't destroy our brothers and sisters? We have to see how precious those men and women are to God. Living for God means being guided by God's love. Look how that's highlighted in verse 11. We are talking here about brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And so in verse 12, if we sin against them, we sin against Christ. Such strong language. But the language is strong because God's love for his people is strong. Then we read about that earlier. He's the God who searches for his lost sheep. He's the God who rejoices when he finds them. We sang about the lengths he goes to in his love so that we can sing salvation song. We're talking here about children and young people and adults Jesus went to the cross for. So how could we be careless about them? When we make our decisions, how could we fail to consider them? As we think about how to apply this, it's important to see we're not taking, talking here about obviously sinful behavior. We're talking about thoughtless, inconsiderate behavior. Thoughtless, inconsiderate behavior that can come from our knowledge of Scripture. So, for example, as we study Scripture, we are often reminded that the culture around us is way out of step with the Bible's teaching on sex. We spent several weeks on that recently, looking at chapters 6 and 7 of this letter. And as we commit ourselves to the Bible's teaching on sex, as we gain knowledge of what's right and wrong in that area, it is possible for us to end up with a harsh and an angry attitude towards, say, homosexuality or gender issues. We can forget it's possible some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have deep struggles in those areas. Struggles that maybe we know nothing about. If you don't stop to consider that, we can end up speaking so contemptuously and so lovelessly about those issues that we become a stumbling block to those brothers and sisters in Christ. 
that they despair of ever finding support and help in the fellowship. As they are trying to turn away from temptation and to follow Jesus. In our great zeal for biblical truth, we need to remember we are called to live for God. And that means as we put our knowledge into action, we must remember God's love for his children. As they seek to turn away from past sin and from present temptation. And what about debatable issues? Issues that are not central to Christianity. Where Christians disagree. And in any church fellowship, there are going to be lots of those debatable issues. Different views on styles of worship, on other church denominations, on the use of spiritual gifts, maybe the details about Jesus' return. Baptism, maybe, the Lord's Supper. Styles of Christian parenting. There are lots of areas where sincere Christians come to different conclusions. We study the Bible carefully and we come to different decisions about what the Bible is saying on those secondary issues. We all believe we have knowledge on those matters. And that doesn't mean there is no right answer in those things. It doesn't mean we should carefully avoid talking about areas of disagreement. We don't have to tiptoe around them. It doesn't mean we can't try to persuade other Christians with our understanding of the issue, going to the Bible with them and looking at it together. All of that's fine. But if we take this passage seriously, we will always remember our calling is not to win arguments. Our calling is to live for God. And that means being guided by God's love. So as we discuss our disagreements, we will do so with genuine consideration for those who disagree with us. We'll be careful not to become puffed up with our knowledge. We will not be prepared to wound a brother or sister just so we can win the argument. And if we find things are beginning to go that way, we have to stop and we have to remind ourselves, this brother or sister that I'm boiling over with is a brother or sister Jesus Christ died for. If I sin against this brother or sister with harsh and bitter words, with a dismissive attitude or an inconsiderate attitude, I am sinning against Christ. One last example. What about the places we go? The activities we get involved in? The way we spend our money? Maybe I've worked through a particular issue in one of those areas. I've worked it through to my own satisfaction. I've brought the question to Scripture. I've concluded it's okay for me to do that activity or go to that place or use my money that way, fair enough. But there is still one more step 
we need to take. We need to ask ourselves, is it possible I might lead someone else into trouble if I go there or do that? We may still decide, no, it's fine. But we have to train ourselves at least to ask the question. None of us is an island. None of us lives isolated from the family of God. Each of us has to live with consideration for God's family. As we finish, let's take a moment to reflect on this. Personally, each of us. Am I taking this responsibility to my brothers and sisters seriously? Do I need to take it more seriously than I have been? Are there any ways I'm in danger or you're in danger of being a stumbling block to a brother or sister? Let's ask God to show us what he needs to show us just quietly and then we'll sing together as we respond. Father, we ask you to help us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We will be lost and we will be powerless without him, but we hear your word and we believe because of the Holy Spirit we have the ability to begin to obey you. And so as we seek to grow in knowledge of your word, may we also grow in consideration for those around us. Deliver us from being proud of our knowledge. As we grow in knowledge, may we grow in love. Amen. Let's respond together as we sing, let love be found among us.